Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Washington, D.C. is Kathleen Grilly. Kathleen is General Counsel at the Sentencing Commission and a frequent speaker at our conferences. First, Kathleen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Adam, thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. Now, it's a big moment uh, in time that we're recording this. The Sentencing Commission just issued its report, the Organizational Sentencing Guidelines, 30 Years of Innovation and Influence. And I have to say it was really interesting, even for me, who's been around this field for so long, to look at the history and all that's come out of it. I got to imagine for the commission, it was a great milestone. Um, you know, looking at the document, looking back at your own many years at the commission, what do you think is probably the greatest innovation of the guidelines? Well, Adam, you know, I have to say that this project was so much fun for me. Um, I've been at the commission for almost 20 years, but as you, as you notice, the uh, organizational guidelines are 30 years old now, so I was not here when they were developed. And so it was just really interesting to dive into the history and think about it and see how the guidelines have impacted organizational sentencing and beyond. And we concluded based on our research and based on the data that we found that the greatest innovations of the guidelines were three things. One was incentivizing self-policing by organizations. Two was providing guidance on effective ethics and compliance programs. And finally, was holding organizations accountable uh, when they committed criminal offenses based on specific culpability factors, meaning, you know, more culpable organizations are penalized more severely than less culpable organizations. Which is, you know, what we would want. Now, you mentioned the impact of the guidelines. What would you say has been the largest impact that they've had? Now, the largest impact is something that when we're working in the criminal justice arena, we don't necessarily realize it. And that is because the largest impact that we see of the organizational guidelines is the widespread acceptance beyond the criminal justice world um, of the guidelines criteria for developing and maintaining effective compliance and ethics programs to prevent, detect, and report criminal conduct. Um, as we noted in our report, you know, other regulatory agencies, including the Department of Justice, have embraced our criteria, private industry, corporate law, even foreign entities, you know, have taken those criteria and put them to work in their own particularized ways. And I want to go back to that uh, in a bit because it, it is notable how extensive it's been. But before we do that, um, you have data that you put in the report that shows the impact of having a compliance program. Can you share that with us? Sure. Um, let me just first start with saying what the data does show and talk about what the data does not show. As you noted, I work for the Sentencing Commission and what we collect is data on entities that are convicted of a federal crime and sentenced in federal court, whether an individual or an organization. So the data I'm going to talk to you about is for organizations that the Department of Justice has decided to criminally prosecute, they've been convicted and sentenced. It is not data about organizations where the Department of Justice or another 
regulatory agency has decided to proceed in other ways against, like with a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement, or even you know pursuing them civilly as opposed to criminally. The main thing that, that we see from the data is that the lack of a compliance program seems to be a contributing factor to criminal prosecutions against organizations. So the overwhelming majority of organizational offenders sentenced in the last 30-year period had no compliance program at all. Only 11 out of almost 5,000 organizations had a program that a court determined was effective. So even those that had programs, they weren't effective compliance and ethics programs. More than half of the organizational offenders that have been sentenced under the FIDE guidelines got a, a culpability score increase because there was involvement in or tolerance of criminal activity by upper management. Very few organizations, only about 1.5% overall, self-reported, cooperated, and received an adjustment for acceptance of responsibility. Self-reporting being the key thing. Most of, them, most of them did not do that. And then finally, courts have ordered you know, compliance programs um, as a condition of probation or as a part of a sentence in about one-fifth of the cases sentenced in the last 30 years. What does this data say to us? I, I think it really highlights the importance of having an effective compliance and ethics program. And it's not the data standing by itself that tells you that. It's the data also combined with the statements, you know, the formal policies of the Department of Justice, the SEC, and other regulatory agencies that tell you that when they're considering how to proceed against an organization who has violated the law, the existence of a program and the adequacy of a program helps inform their prosecutorial decision making. Programs generally lead to better outcomes for organizations. It either works to completely deter and detect criminal conduct, which obviously would be the optimal outcome that we all would hope for. But even when a program is not completely successful, but it's reasonably designed, implemented and enforced, this leads to a generally leads to a better outcome from an organization than a criminal conviction and a sentencing. Um, bottom line, I think what the data suggests is that implementing and maintaining an effective compliance and ethics program is a worthwhile investment. Well, you won't get an argument, obviously, from me on that topic. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it, you know it's more evidence uh, of the fact, and and you know yet there are organizations that remain resistant. You know, some think they're too small um, to have one, right. um, which I can understand if you're a very small organization. But others, you know, have every reason as to why. Do you have any theories as to what drives this resistance? Well, you, you mentioned the one thing that um, we see in our data, which is that the overwhelming majority of organizations that are sentenced um, have been smaller organizations. 70% um, of them had less than 50 employees and another 9.4 had under 100 employees. So the size of an organization 
suggest that an, a program can be less structured, but the size of the organization may also mean less resources to devote to ethics and compliance, or you know, less um, less knowledge of the requirements could be a contributing factor. I mean, if you're a small organization with only 50 employees, you may not be well versed in these kinds of requirements. Uh, there's a couple of things there. I do know that I have heard at your conferences and and other uh, in other places that profitability is the bottom line for organizations, and a lot of times there is this feeling that ethics and compliance. Um, you know, the profitability margin or how it contributes to your return on investment can't can't be measured. I do know that there are more studies more recently that seem to suggest that developing effective programs can contribute to the bottom line, but I'm not convinced that everyone believes that. Uh, so that may be part of it. Uh, the other thing that we see in our data in particular is that statistic about the involvement in or tolerance uh, of criminal activity, it was a you know pretty high percentage over 50%. That means that ethics compliance is just not important to the upper management of a lot of companies. And so I think those are all possible reasons why there is this resistance that we see out there. Well, on the profitability one, I think the hardest thing about that resistance is there's nothing that can wipe out multiple years of profits faster than a conviction or a large settlement with the government. Um, but unfortunately, it's like a lot of things. People don't see the need to make the initial investment and end up paying later. Now, let's go back to something you touched on earlier. And, and I think it can't be understated in terms of its importance. I mean, one of the most striking things to me about the impact of the guidelines, it's that they've been adopted, not in a legal sense, but more the informal one globally. I mean, you can see the imprint on the UK Bribery Act, a host of other laws. And, and it's been arguably very terrific for business um, because the expectations of compliance programs around the world are largely the same because of it. Why do you think the guidelines have ended up being such a gold standard globally? You know, this is the most exciting part to me about the work that we did here is, is sort of learning about that and seeing about that and, you know, more and more hearing about how um, ethics and compliance is spreading around the world. Uh, and it brings to mind that, you know, uh, old adage about imitation being the sincerest form of flattery. But what I really think is, is that the commission worked long and hard. And, I, and when I say the commission, I mean the commission aided by all of the contributors, um, you know, who helped develop the organizational guidelines at their instance. And then in 2003, when they had that, you know, the big push to um, elevate the criteria for an effective ethics and compliance program, I think they really strike the right balance between offering sort of common sense steps on how to self-police and what are the things you need to do in order to effectively self-police while still being broad enough, these criteria are broad enough that they can be tailored to different types and sizes of organizations in different industries. This was really, um, a key thing that the commission set out to do because it knew that chapter eight was going to apply to such a broad array of organizations from the large multinational corporations um, that, you know, are all over the world to, you know, very small mom and pop organization. And so they really 
tried to do that and make it uh, broadly applicable. Uh, but I think one of the other reasons that uh, guidelines have become a global standard is we've exported it from the United States and it's through the efforts of multinational uh, American countries, you know, that the com companies that know they have to do this here in the States. And so they've brought it out to the rest of the world. Um, your members, uh, you know, in the ethics and compliance community have also been influential in advising the rest of the world. I know, you know, the OEC anti-bribery convention was developed with the help of American experts. So I think that you all have had something to do with that as well. Um, it's really, for me personally, the, the most exciting thing to see, because again, um, on the day-to-day -day work of the Sentencing Commission, we're looking at what's going on in the sentencing arena and the criminal justice aspect of it, but to see that influence spread around the world um, in, in what was, in the Commission's mind, an experiment. Let's experiment on this notion of self-policing and to see that broad impact is really very exciting. It is. I mean, and it's been nice, you know, in the whatever it is. I started 22 years ago that I've been in the world of compliance and ethics, seeing an American thing becoming a global thing. It's more, uh, more laws adopt, you know, basically the seven element approach of the guidelines to it. And people realizing that, look, how are you going to argue with the wisdom of understand what your risks are, do something about it. Um, right. and, which is really what the heart of this all is. Well, Kathleen, thank you for sharing these insights with us. Thanks to the commission for its 30 years of great work on this. Uh, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaup from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <laughs>